Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash GFZ. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation. Please note that information regarding COVID-19 is constantly evolving. This activity is based on the data available at the time of its recording. Hello, this is Anil Gupta. I'm a family practitioner from Albion Finch Medical and William Moser Health Center in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to this activity titled Preventing COVID Progression and Transmission in the Outpatient Setting, Keeping Abreast of Therapeutic Developments. In this first presentation titled Treating COVID-19 Infection Early, Who, What, and When, we will discuss the latest clinical developments in treatments for patients with early-stage COVID-19 infection. We will talk about what is early COVID, which patients should be considered for early therapeutic intervention to prevent progression, what treatments are available for early COVID, and the data that supports their use. Early COVID infection is where viral replication is responsible for symptoms, including constitutional symptoms, fever, dry cough, headache, and diarrhea. Symptoms could also include mild dyspnea. Signs could include some lab and chest x-ray changes. Physical examination could reveal some chest findings and mildly reduced oxygen saturation. Which patients should be considered for early intervention to prevent progression? Those that are stage 1 or 2A with mild symptoms or signs can be considered. However, if oxygen saturation is less than 94% or significant dyspnea, individuals should be hospitalized instead. Early COVID is defined as mild to moderate illness. Once again, this is in the viral replication phase before the cascade of events that leads to inflammation and coagulopathy. The potential treatments include those that target the virus, that is, antibodies and antivirals. Let's start with the monoclonal antibodies. The receptor binding domain of the COVID-19 spike protein binds to the ACE2 receptor, which is found in many tissues of the human body. The monoclonals work by binding to that receptor binding domain so that the virus cannot bind to the ACE2 receptor, thus neutralizing the virus. Monoclonals reduce viral load, shorten recovery time, prevent severe disease, and reduce hospitalization and or emergency room visits. The first monoclonal treatment I will discuss is the combination of BAM and ETI. As you can see, there was a 70% relative reduction in hospitalization or death by day 29, 7% versus 2.1%. Nobody died in the actively treated group, and there was a significant viral load reduction, which was 16 times greater in the actively treated group by day 7. This safety slide shows really no safety signals. This will be a common theme in all the treatments presented today. Therefore, I won't spend much time on these safety slides. The next treatment I will discuss is the combination of CAS and IMD. This study changed over the duration of the study, and in the primary efficacy population, the inclusion criteria included individuals with obesity, CV disease, chronic lung, liver, and kidney disease, 
chronic metabolic diseases like diabetes, and immunosuppressed individuals as per investigator judgment. Or the second criteria was age over 50. The endpoint was, again, reduction in hospitalization or death by day 29. And the results are similar in the 2,400 and 1,200 milligram groups with a 71% and 70% risk reduction, respectively. Once again, the drugs were found to be very safe with more serious adverse events in the placebo group. And these were thought to be related to the underlying COVID infection, not the drug itself. Grade two or greater infusion site reactions were almost negligible with very small numbers in any of the arms. Citrovimab is the first non-combination monoclonal antibody treatment. Interestingly, this antibody was isolated from a SARS-CoV-1 survivor back in 2003. This study was once again an outpatient study for individuals defined to be at risk for progression of their underlying COVID illness. Inclusion criteria included individuals with obesity, defined as BMI over 30, chronic kidney disease, congestive heart failure, COPD or asthma, diabetic patients, or age over 55. Symptom onset had to be less than five days. There was a 79% reduction in hospitalization or death by day 29, 6% to 1%. The actual numbers are 30 to 6. Once again, no one died in the actively treated group or required high flow oxygen or mechanical ventilation. Adverse events were mild and quite uncommon. In summary, the BAM and ETI treatment caused a 70% reduction in hospitalization and death. It was an intravenous treatment, and onset of symptoms to have inclusion into the study was less than three days. The CAS and IMD combination had a 70 or 71% relative risk reduction, once again an intravenous treatment, but apparently also being used for treatment subcutaneously. The symptom onset in this study was less than seven days to have inclusion into the study. The next study was the citrovimab study with an 85% reduction in the published data so far, but in the full data set, which is also available, it was a 79% risk reduction. It was also an intravenous treatment, but intramuscular treatment is coming soon. Symptom onset had to be less than five days to be included in the study. The next two antibodies are more emerging treatments. AZDT442 is an intramuscular treatment given less than seven days of symptom onset. Its half-life is very long. So we will discuss this combination in the next section when we discuss prophylaxis. In the trial CTP59, there was a 72% relative risk reduction, once again, an intravenous treatment. And to be included in the study, symptoms had to be three days or less. Unfortunately, Omicron will have a great impact on the treatments that we discussed just now. It appears all but the citrovimab monoclonal would either not be effective or the efficacy would be greatly reduced. Now we will switch gears and discuss antivirals. First, molinopravir. This study was in mild to moderate patients, as were the other studies. Inclusion criteria similar to the previously mentioned studies. Symptom onset of five days or less. Initially, there was thought to be a 50% reduction in hospitalization or death with the interim data, 14% versus 7%. However, 
there was a second press release that revealed a reduced efficacy of 30%. The actual number was 9.7 to 6.8%. This intervention was found to be quite safe. There was nine deaths in the placebo arm versus one in the actively treated group. The last treatment we will discuss is another antiviral, PF0732132, with ritonavir. In this study, there was an 89% reduction in death or hospitalization if treated within three days of symptom onset, 7% versus 0.8%. If treated within five days, it was 6.7% versus 1%. There was no deaths in the actively treated group versus 10 in the placebo group. Importantly, with this combination, there are a number of significant drug-drug interactions because of the ritonavir, especially with the direct oral anticoagulants, statins, and certain seizure medications. Once again, the treatment was found to be very safe with more adverse events in the placebo arm than the actively treated arm. In summary, I hope we have shown there is a spectrum of therapies available to treat COVID-19, and the list is growing. They can prevent disease progression, severe illness, and death, and they can decrease the burden on the healthcare system. The monoclonals are approved in many jurisdictions. However, some may not be effective against the current variants. The antivirals are also approved in some jurisdictions, and this is a very fluid situation. Clinicians wishing to use any of the therapies should review local guidelines. Hello, this is Dr. Anil Gupta, a family practitioner from Albion Finch Medical, William Ulster Health Centre in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In this second presentation titled Beyond Vaccines, Therapeutic Prevention of COVID Transmission, we will review the latest clinical developments in the strategies being investigated to prevent infection transmission. Discussion points for this presentation include which individuals have a poor prognosis if they contract COVID-19. Other than vaccines, what strategies can be used in those that are at high risk for contracting COVID-19? We will discuss what trials are underway or have been completed and how we can incorporate this into clinical practice. Which people are more likely to have a poor prognosis should they contract COVID-19? There are three groups that we will show. The first group is based on trial data. This includes individuals age 65 or older, obesity as defined as BMI over 30, diabetics, cardiovascular disease, including hypertension, and chronic lung diseases. The second group is based on expert opinion. It is also a strong recommendation and it is of the immunocompromised population, which was excluded from some of the studies. The third group is based on expert opinion, as these individuals had limited representation in the trials. This time, obesity or being overweight with a BMI of 25 to 30, chronic kidney disease, pregnancy, sickle cell disease, and other disorders. With widespread vaccination in many countries, why do we need anything else? There are still many individuals that have not or choose not to be vaccinated. Of course, there are other countries where the vaccines are not as readily available. As we are seeing currently, vaccine effectiveness changes over time with waning immunity and surge in variants of concern. Immunocompromised individuals are less protected with the vaccines. Then there are the subpopulations that cannot take the vaccine. 
Lastly, subpopulations that are less protected by vaccines, such as the frail elderly population, elderly kidney patients, and those living in deprived areas. This slide on solid organ transplant patients in France shows immune response after having one to three doses of the Pfizer vaccine. On the left, we can see before the second dose, meaning only one dose has been received, only 4% had any antibody response. Even after three doses, only 68% had any antibody response. And on the right-hand side, you can see even that response is highly variable. What trials are underway and have been completed? This study was done in a skilled nursing home and assisted living facility involving staff and residents. It was an intravenous treatment. The two groups received placebo or active one-to-one. -one. There was an 80% risk reduction in contracting COVID-19, 8.8% in the actively treated group versus 22.5% in the placebo group. The treatment was safe with adverse events similar in active and placebo groups. The next study was using CAS and IMD. It was administered subcutaneously. This was a study in household contacts of an infected individual. Symptomatic infection rates were 81% less in the active group, 7.8% in the placebo group versus 1.5% in the active group. This shows similar data with a very rapid separation of the two groups. The absolute numbers were 59 symptomatic infections in the placebo group versus 11 in the actively treated group. Once again, the intervention was very safe with more adverse events in the placebo arm. This study used a combination of two long-acting antibodies. Inclusion was those that were predicted to be poor responders to vaccines or intolerant to vaccines, immunocompromised or unvaccinated individuals. Individuals must have had a baseline negative serology for COVID-19 antibodies and no history of previous infection. The intervention was a 300 milligram intramuscular dose of active or placebo. Participants were randomized two to one, active to placebo. There was a 77% reduction in developing symptomatic infection up until day 183. Importantly, two sequential injections of 150 milligrams are expected to provide immunity for 12 months or longer. Once again, the intervention was safe. There was no deaths in the actively treated group and two in the placebo arm. As I mentioned in the treatment section of this presentation, Omicron has completely changed the landscape. If Omicron remains the dominant strain, then none of these preventions mentioned would be effective. There are also ongoing trials with antivirals in prevention, but the data is yet limited. The key messages for this section of the talk are vaccines are the mainstay of prevention. More options are needed for the immunocompromised or for individuals not fully vaccinated. The preventions mentioned with the monoclonals seem very promising, but new variants may change all of this. Studies using the antivirals in prevention are ongoing, and newer agents are coming that might show greater benefit in prevention of COVID-19 transmission. We hope this presentation has been useful, and thank you for your attention. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.